This is the current federal tax developments for the week of January the 31st, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers here in Phoenix. We're going to talk to you today about some things that have gone on this week in the area of federal taxes. And the first thing we're going to talk about here is the IRS put out recently, and then this week it got a lot more notice, a set of changes to the instructions for the Schedule K-2 and K-3 that were issued last year. And these instructions served to eliminate what was frankly some misleading material under the Who Must File portion of this, plus updated some additional information. The takeaway from this is that you might have to file this form even though you think, wait, my partnership doesn't have any foreign activities, I don't have any foreign partners, I don't do anything overseas, I mean, there's nothing. I don't even have a foreign tax credit from some dividends. I have nothing. You may still need to file the form. Also, we had a notice from the IRS this week issued where after a lot of complaining and shortly after a le two letters were sent to them, signed by over 200 members of Congress that demanded the IRS do something about controlling the mess that are the IRS automated notices and processing delays at this point, granting very, very minor form of relief for one type of notice, which yes, has been very annoying recently, but then it telling us why the IRS couldn't do anything else and telling us all these reasons why the agency can't do that. Well, finally, in response to that notice, the AICPA, shortly after that notice was released and before an equivalent notice was put out or an equivalent notice that just didn't go quite as, well, let's say, wasn't quite as critical of the IRS as the AICPA notice was issued by a coalition that had called for various things to be done by the IRS, a coalition of which the AICPA is a member. But the AICPA was effectively, you know, was in a way one does with a polite letter, was critical, very critical of the IRS and their reasoning in their notice. So we'll talk about that. Also talk about whether we're likely to see anything more at this point. And I think that's a little more questionable than whether or not, you know, this notice at least got everybody to feel better about getting frustrations out. But let's start with that K2 and K3 form. And this was published on the IRS website. It was actually published on the 18th of January. And the title of this is Changes to the 2021 Partnership Instructions for Schedules K-2 and K-3 Form 1065. And there is an equivalent one that does it for S-corporations, which also had the brand new schedules K-2 and K-3. For those who are not aware, Schedule K-2 uh, is a supplement effectively to Schedule K of the 1065 or 1120S. And K3 is a supplement to that will go with K1s. And both of these forms, which go on for a number of pages, are a way of consolidating information that may be necessary for the partners to deal with various foreign reporting issues. Now, this was issued by the IRS in draft form back in 2020 initially, uh, became final for this year filing, for 2021 filing this past summer. In August, we got the instructions. I mean, it was relatively early that apparently all this calmed down. And we previously discussed about the IRS offering 
some types of relief for partnerships that took a good faith attempt to comply with this, but due to not being able to get information from partners, were unable this year to fully comply with the requirements. Well, now suddenly, you know, months, you know, remember this was August when these instructions came out. Now here, right at the end of January, so basically sitting here uh, five months later, and as tax season is getting underway, in fact, just before the IRS, well, actually at that point, the IRS was officially accepting entity returns. Not really, though. You can't, still really a practical matter. You can't really file electronically a partnership return at this point because you definitely have forms that don't qualify yet, haven't been released. But in any event, while we're into effectively a filing season, certainly less than two months before the due date of partnership and S-Corp returns, the IRS on their website posts now a set of updates and not just a small like one or two paragraph fix like they did last year when we talked about whether or not you had to worry about if you had virtual currency it, all you did was buy it. Was that a reporting issue? Did you have to say yes on the box? And the IRS told us after the fact, okay, no, no, you don't have to. This is not like that type of release. This is a much longer, much more detailed update to the instructions. And this instruction notice came out. And one of the big takeaways I think you need to take from this, if you've not looked at those instructions, or let's say you looked at them, but you read right up front the what's new, who must file, let's say, of this. And one of the things you found immediately in the instructions to K1 and K2, which were about, what are they, about 34 pages long, if I remember right, the K1, at least for the 1065, it told you right up front about who must file. Generally says the partnership need not complete this schedule if the partnership does not have items of international tax relevance typically international activities or foreign partners. Now, I suspect a lot of practitioners who don't do much, do not have partnerships, who are involved in you know, activities outside the U.S. You have no foreign partners. The partnerships operate entirely inside the U.S. because maybe they're renting a building. You know, renting a building in Grand Island, Nebraska, you know, not really going to have much foreign involvement there. It seems kind of no big deal. So I'm sure many of you just kind of may have heard about that, read about it, say that's not really my practice, and skipped. Didn't really spend time looking at other details. Well, it turns out that, let's just say, that particular document was more than a little bit misleading in the front summary about that, because it also suggested you wouldn't really need to get a lot of information from partners in most cases. And again, more than slightly misleading, we discover. Because to be totally correct, totally truthful, the issue that we're going to talk about here with the foreign tax credit is honestly something that actually was mentioned in the instructions issued in August. But it effectively contradicts that statement that said, you know, generally, you know, if you don't have any foreign activities, you don't have to file this. And that said, international activities are foreign partners. Well, it turns out that, yes, in many cases, and we might even be most cases, you will need to file a Form K-1. Now, these changes in instructions, or not K-2 or K-3, I should say, these changes in instructions aren't all bad news. 
they really did put in a lot of simplifications and exceptions for cases where you have actual foreign operations, you know, actual foreign ties, either operations or at least foreign partners, various other issues for things you'd have to file. But the problem comes in the discussion they have to deal with the foreign tax credit. And that's where things get interesting. And the most important part of this is a discussion that gets added to the who must file portion that points you back into the discussion that actually was in the August information, right? We had this back in August. It was there. But back in August, we kind of ignored all this because, you know, we read that part that said, hey, if, if we have no foreign operations, we, we have no foreign partner. Well, you know, we don't really have anything, right? We don't have a problem. Now, it turns out that we do. So what it now tells us at the bottom, it still has basically the same statement, but now it has an additional item. And this additional description is probably what you need to concentrate on. And when you do, you're going to discover quickly that I probably am going to have to file a return for this. I'm probably going to have to file this schedule, not a return, but the schedule. Because it's going to turn out that my clients are going to present me with some issues, or at least some partners will, and I'm not going to be able to ignore this filing. So question becomes, okay, what exactly is causing all this problem? I mean, come on, what could be such a big deal? Well, we'll tell you what could be such a big deal. And it's going to be the Form 1116 on the individual return. The note tells us a partnership with no foreign income, no assets generating foreign source income, and no foreign taxes paid or accrued. Right now, you would think from the initial quick statement that that entity you'd be told right here normally will not have to file schedules K1 and K2, but that's not what this is telling us. It says may still need to report information on schedules K1 and K2. Okay, well, wait, that kind of contradicts what we had up first, right? Well, we'll keep going. We'll explain what the issue is. For example, if the partner claims a credit for foreign taxes paid by the partner, the partner may need certain information from the partnership to complete Form 1116. Now, what you're going to find out there is, let's remember how an 1116 works, right? You end up looking at income overall, income U.S. of various sources, and you essentially figure out how much of your income represented, you know, the percentage of income from that country versus income overall. You end up getting a credit, etc. But you are looking at that ratio of overall income. This is where the problem is going to arise. In essence, that kind of detailed information about the source of income and whether it's domestic or not, and if not domestic, from which country, that's the kind of information and gross income information that the partner is going to need if they fill out the full 1116. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the other issues that come there, but that, that's actually a pretty key issue. Also, it says a partnership that's only a domestic partner may still be required to complete Part 9 when the partnership makes certain deductible payments to foreign-related partners of its domestic partners. 
The amount of information reported there will assist any domestic corporate partner. Now, this is what's important here. Corporate partner, in determining the amount of the base erosion payments made through the partnership, in determining if the partners are subject to the base erosion and anti-abuse tax. Now, that second item, probably not going to be as big a problem. First thing is, how many C-Corp partners do you have in your partnerships? But secondly, as you quickly discover, you know, the base erosion, in essence, the beat. As an attorney in an update after the TCJ years ago put it, he said he took one look at the levels of revenue one needed to be subject to the beat and realized immediately that he could write off his entire client base and his client base were fairly, were fairly high net worth clients in the Pacific Northwest and he could basically ignore them because none of them were going to have a C corporation that would ever get near the beat. So the beat doesn't worry me as much, right? The base erosion, uh, the base erosion, shall we say, get that title again. Just remember it's the beat. Base erosion, anti-abuse tax. That's not our problem. But the foreign tax credit is, right? So here's the problem. In essence, certain partners, and this is from the instructions, it's actually from the instructions we had before. Certain partners will use the following information to claim and figure a foreign tax credit on Form 1116 or 1118, right? And that information they're going to need, right, is going to be things related to gross income from sourcing, etc. These are in Parts 2 and Part 3 of Schedule K2 and K3. And you have to complete that. And here's probably the big takeaway. You have to complete that K2 and K3 unless you can get solid information that absolutely no partner is going to need that information. And they will need that information if they file for a foreign tax credit on their personal return, not related at all to your partnership. They're just filing for a foreign tax credit on their return. And they're not able to use uh, the special rule that allows them to claim the foreign tax credit without having to file a Form 1116. Now, if you've forgotten how that one works, let's talk about that rule. Because if all your partners would meet this criteria, that's fine. But the problem is, I can't know if they meet the criteria by just guessing. So, an individual would not have to file the Form 1116, right? We don't have to, a taxpayer would not have to file this, right? If all these individuals' foreign source gross income is from passive activity income, interest and dividends, basically, and certain other issues, right? Uh, passive income also includes income subject to the special rule for high tax income and also certain export financing interests. But basically, let's face it, a lot of our clients are invested in mutual funds or invested in, you know, in essence, stocks that have actually have foreign taxes withheld. So, okay, we got that group. And that's usually where I think 99% of the foreign taxes that I, foreign tax credits I've ever had to deal with are those investment-created foreign tax credits. And also then, all income and any foreign taxes paid out report due on a qualified pay statement. Qualified pay statements include 1099-DIV, 1099-INT, uh, Schedule K-1, K-3, and K-3, right? Schedule K-1 from 1041, Schedule K-3 from 1065, Schedule K-3 from 1120S, or similar substitute statements. And then number three, and this is where we're going to run to trouble every so often. 
The total credible foreign taxes aren't more than $300 or $600 if married filing a joint return. So there, there's our first catch. Now, if all of our partners tell us either they have no foreign taxes this year, so they won't be filing 1116 at all because they have no foreign taxes, or they have foreign taxes related to their investments, but they come below $600 if they're going to file married joint, $300 if they aren't filing under that status, then we can, you know, go ahead and not worry about this and skip doing that. But remember, a couple of other issues. The election is not available to estates or trusts. That creates a problem for us right there. If any partner is an estate or trust, by definition, they can't use this shortcut method. So unless that estate or trust can tell you they have no foreign taxes on which a foreign tax credit would be computed, you're going to have to do the K2, K3. There's your first start. Trusts are going to be a problem. Estates will be a problem. Secondly, remember that taxpayers who make this election cannot basically carry over in any form for any other year any foreign tax paid or accrued in a tax year to which the election applies, right? Other years aren't affected. Uh, you know, you still have to take account the general rules and you're still required to reduce the taxes available for credit by any amount you would have entered on line 12 of the 1116. So bottom line, you know, clients may or may not want to, if they have a carryover issue, that's probably the biggest reason why they might not want to do it. They may not realize there's a shortcut method. Uh, that sometimes happens because they just go into TurboTax, provide the overall income, limits, etc. TurboTax computes that. They don't really worry about that, so they're using the long calculation. You're allowed to use long calculations, so they might do that. That's your issue. Now, the bottom line here, though, it makes very clear in the standard or in the instructions that you have to have get information from every partner and conclude they will not be filing the foreign tax credit or they're going to qualify for and make this election or else you have to provide the K2 and K3 information related that basically relates primarily to the gross income issues, right? The gross net income issues. That means there'll be a lot of K2s and K3s required. Now, as I said, the IRS in the initial instructions just had that front end statement and who must file, you know, which most people are going to use initially to just say, hey, don't need to deal with this. Read that and said, ah, I don't need to deal with this. I understand it said typically. I understand it did not say there wouldn't be cases where you'd have to do so. But I'm really not sure this is typical, right? That typically it won't be a problem if you don't have foreign operations. Turns out that, yeah, you don't, but your partners do. So bottom line at this point, I do need to use this issue. Now, there are some other areas where it provides relief. So it gives some relief from having to attach like 5471s in some cases to the K1s. It gives some information, or to the K3s. It gives us some information about when we have to issue a K3. You know, it has other useful items. The rest of the instructions aren't really that bad, shall we say. Doesn't, don't create that many problems. But I do suspect that if you have not looked at this form, you've not looked at the filings, you've not looked at how it works, you may need to seriously get involved and realize you're going to be doing a lot of gross income reporting and kicking that out to partners. You're going to have to get some sort of representation from every partner that they are not going to be claiming a foreign tax credit. As you can imagine, 
that's going to involve them saying, what do you mean? You're going to spend time potentially educating them on the foreign tax credit. They still don't understand it, so you'll be talking to their tax professional, and we'll all be going back and forth on these things forever. So I have a feeling a lot of us will just be doing K2s and K3s rather than trying to mess with that whole making sure no partner has an issue in this area unless we do all the partners and then we'll know if they have an issue. That's probably the other issue. We won't really know if they have an issue until such time as we've actually gotten, you know, we've actually gotten this issue, right? We've had this put together. You know, so I said, so we actually have the returns done, which again, probably won't be something that'll be easy to do. So because of that, what I would say is take care in this area. In the write-up, we talk about the other areas. If you do do a lot in this, this will be in there. Uh, please remember that they are not going to go back and redo the PDF instructions that are on the website. So if you just download the instructions, you're not going to be told that these instructions are incomplete. There's no sign yet because this came out on the 18th. We're sitting here on the 29th when I record this. It'll be the 31st when this goes out. But at least as of the 29th, they have not changed it. I doubt they'll change it by the 31st. And I doubt they plan to make any change during the year. They usually don't because they understand that people have already gotten those instructions and are working with them and the tax software vendors have. So be aware though. Watch for the K2s. We may very well need to be doing some additional work and you may be filing that a lot more than you would have thought you would be filing it. And if you thought you weren't going to do any of them, I would suggest it's time now to go back and double check that assumption. Let's talk now about what became the other fun part this week, the IRS automatic notices and a war of statements. We'll put it that way. On the 27th, right, the IRS on the 27th on Thursday issued a statement. Well, apparently they issued it maybe late on Wednesday, but on the website it's, the, it's dated Thursday. So I'm going to use 27th as my date. Uh, on that date, the IRS issued a notice on their website, right, that, that they were going to be doing, right, uh, they're going to, in response to the fact that they've heard that maybe people are having some issues, right, they're going to be suspending one notice. Now, as you may, may recall, we've had a lot of complaints to the IRS from various sources, including the complaint we had for that coalition we discussed last week that included the AICPA, National Association of Enrolled Agents, and a number of other tax professional organizations that have been complaining loudly about the IRS essentially losing control of both the process for notices, so that automated notices are going out and dunning letters are going out when the IRS has not even had time to even look at responses issued before. So regardless of what the taxpayer does, the IRS goes after them and you know starts sending these dunning notices about levying, seizing accounts, and all those other fun things, despite the fact that you've written months ago uh, explaining to them why the original notice was in error. And as has also been pointed out, if you do manage to get through to them on the phone and they put a hold on the collection activity, you know, and then need to read your stuff, well, what the problem's going to come into when that happens is that, uh, so anyway, when it's going to come in, what we're going to have is 
that, you know, basically we have this come in, we call, we get the hold on the account. The hold on the account is for 45 days. We all know that is a worthless time period today. 45 days from when the hold gets put on the account, they will not have yet begun to look at anything. So the whole thing ramps up again. So certainly there's also been a discussion that they should put a hold that is longer than 45 days, at least as long as the time that it will take the IRS to get to correspondence, that it's got to be at least that time period. Unfortunately, that's not what we got out of this. What the IRS did announce is they're going to stop issuing notices uh, that you probably have seen, especially if you had any client that filed a paper return or you know anybody who filed a paper return because you'll get asked about these regardless. What's happened with all kinds of paper returns. If the taxpayer filed a paper tax return with a balance due and they sent in a check to pay the balance, okay, those two steps. The taxpayer eventually gets a notice that says, you know, you're about to lose this credit. Okay, what's that? And they said, we have a credit of, let's say the client paid $5,000 with a return. We have a credit of $5,000, it'll be $5,822, whatever the amount was went with the return, right? But you've not yet filed your 2020 return, right? We need to know what to do this. If you have, you know, if, you know, in essence, so either sign a return and file it now because nasty taxpayer, you haven't filed and you've been so naughty, it's just horrible. Or, you know, send us a copy of the return you filed. Now, we all know that that check was in the envelope with the tax return. It was in every one of these cases in the envelope with the tax return. The IRS had to have received the tax return to be able to cash the check. That's also a piece of reality. What's happening here is, as IRS always does, they, they've cashed the check, but they haven't actually gotten around to processing the return. And now this is many months later. The computer, which is the only thing still functioning at all down there, at least, you know, reasonably functioning, apparently at the IRS, it's now counted the months. It's had this balance sitting there, a credit, and it hasn't seen a return. So it's generating its standard follow-up notice. If you actually ever did this, right? Your client sent money in at October 15th, but didn't file a return. You would have gotten this notice. The problem is that's what the computer thinks that apparently a huge proportion of the country who filed a paper return did this year because they all just stopped filing returns. Now, we all know that's not really what the computer thinks. The computer doesn't think in this area. It's just that the programming always assumed that that would be the reason why this situation would arise. Clearly, that's not it. Well, the IRS has announced they will stop sending these notices. Hey, great. Of course, I think almost all of them are out by now for the filings at October 15th. So it's, you know, closing the barn door after the horse is gone problem. But nevertheless, they'll stop doing it. However, the rest of the notice goes on and gives tons of reasons why the IRS says they aren't able to stop other notices. And the reasons talk about a couple of things. They do talk about issues. They say, look, our technology is ancient and aged and we can't really do anything with it. We've never been giving the funding to upgrade the system. So we deal with ancient systems that can't be changed and stopped easily. 
They say if we actually go in and try to stop these things, it creates other issues and problems that may make things worse. So, you know, we, we can't really touch it. We don't have that option. So, in essence, plus they said other notices have to go out on time because if they don't, we claim they won't be valid. And the IRS says, well, so for a lot of this, at least implies for a lot of this, we would need Congress to take specific action. That's the IRS's statement about why these things are happening. Now, needless to say, most of us, when we read that, were more than a little skeptical. You know, it seemed like a lot of these things were like, okay, you stop this one, but I don't see why a 45-day versus 90-day hold would cause the entire system to fall apart. I mean, maybe it would, but really? And the other catch is, and how would you know if it fell apart considering the shape we're in now? In any event, shortly after that notice came out, later that same day, the AICPA issued its own statement. The AICPA issued a news release that essentially was titled, AICPA comments on recent IRS statements. We believe there is more they can do. It was an IRS news release issued on the 27th. Either same day or day after, depending upon if you buy the 26th or the 27th as the date the IRS got this out. In any event, the AICPA, to put it mildly, expresses skepticism on, the, on their stated uh, reasons for doing it. And they specifically, in this case, quote, AICPA President and CEO Barry Mellencon, uh, essentially saying that, okay, first, talk about damning with faint praise, the actions taken by the IRS today signals their desire to help taxpayers. Okay, great. That's the last time we're going to say something good about the IRS in this thing, apparently. Well, to be honest, yeah, basically. But we believe there is more they can do and respectfully disagree. Respectfully disagree is a term in a letter like this that is essentially a veiled insult, right? In essence, we don't understand how you stupidly came to this a totally wrong conclusion. That's probably the way to look at this, right? But we respectfully disagree with the IRS assertion. Not their, you know, I love it. Assertions are things you make without evidence, right? Not their conclusion, their assertion, that congressional action is needed to suspend the automatic issuance of notices, which is put, that is actually emphasized in the press release, nicely italicized there, right? So the AICPA says that, right? You know, and then, and we also would welcome details from the commissioner on what he believes the IRS can do and what might, might require congressional action. And then they go on to like, you know, twist the knife slightly with 120 congressmen, with 120 senators and congressmen signing a letter, you know. Um, Congress has demonstrated it is more than ready to advocate for taxpayers and practitioners, and we are confident the lawmakers would act swiftly to assist. Um, basically, call their bluff. If all this is caused, or a large part is caused by Congress not doing something, tell us what they need to do, and we expect within the week they'll have it done. Right? That one we can get moving because this is negatively impacting congressmen's offices, the offices of congressmen, congresswomen, senators, because they're getting nailed, their constituent, uh, basically, services part of their offices are getting absolutely overloaded with complaints about delayed refunds, IRS notices, threatening letters, and they're unable now to get relief from the Taxpayer Advocates Office because they're overwhelmed 
and this is hitting kind of a critical point. Now, the AICPA also demands, uh, might as well say demand, right, that the recommendations put forth by the by what is the coalition, right, in this case, Tax Professionals United for Taxpayer Relief Coalition, that one we talked about last week, that those be put into effect. The four they say is disconnect, discontinue automated compliance actions used until the IRS is ready, prepared to vote the necessary resources for timely resolution. They note that is similar to a recommendation made by the National Taxpayer Advocate in her in her report this year. Right, align requests for accounts hold with the time the IRS takes the IRS to process printed abatement requests. The taxpayer Advocate asked for that one too. Want to remind you. Offer a reasonable cost penalty waiver similar to the first time abate waiver, but that doesn't burn your FTA waiver. And also provide taxpayers with targeted relief from the underpayment and late payment penalty for 2020 and 2021 tax year. Right? So the AICPA says they want to see those things implemented, right? What we had with that, uh, with the coalition. And they want to know what Congress needs to do. Now, the coalition did issue its own release. And that release did essentially say, yes, you know, we want you to do the four things we talked about. However, that, that release did not actually have the uh, other complaints about the IRS's, uh, you know, statements or that they can't do things or all that stuff. Just simply said, I have a feeling what probably happened was the AICPA wanted a stronger notice then probably you could get all of those who signed off on the on the coalition notice uh, to get behind. So the AICPA agreed to be part of the coalition notice, which they are again this time, but they issued their own, which is pretty much a, you know, IRS, we, we, we are tired, we're sick, we're tired, we're sick and tired at this point. You need to do something now. Now, if you remember this, probably go, this goes back to November of 2020, when you may remember, the commissioner was at the AICPA National Conference on Federal Taxes and was asked in a presentation by, as I recall, AICPA staff. I remember I wasn't there, but I saw the tax notes reports and, you know, essentially said when asked, well, you know, you know, what, what about the fact we sent you a letter saying, you know, the AICPA Tax Exec Committee sent a letter asking for, you know, penalty relief and other types of relief from the agency and essentially the Commissioner said, no way, absolutely no way would we ever do something like this. You know, there are perfectly good mechanisms for you to get reasonable cause relief. We, we are not going to get blanket relief because that would just be abused. Okay. That didn't go over well then. I think the AICPA now is saying, look, we've got the things have gotten far worse, largely because probably in their mind, you didn't do anything we asked you to do back then. So now you got this huge mess, which is getting worse and worse and worse because it's not getting better. We're probably all aware of that. So we're just going to, we don't care anymore. You know, if you're not going to listen to us, we're going to pound on this. And I, you know, I, I guess the theory may be that if you pound on it hard enough and the press starts picking up on it and Congress is mad also that, yeah, in essence, you'll force the agency's hand and potentially, I don't think the commissioner wants to do it but probably force the commissioner's hand a bit to see what can be done and to get it going. Well, in any event, this has been Current Federal Tax Developments for this week, week of January the 31st, 2022. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you, as always, by Kaplan Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. 
Uh, you can email me, edzollers at currentfederaltaxdevelopments.com. If you have any questions, uh, you know, rough questions, you can put them there and I'll see if I can get around to answering them. Uh, also, I do, I do check in on the Connect websites for New Jersey and Arizona, Mich or Minnesota, not Michigan, Minnesota, right, get the right states, um, Illinois and Washington. And also do take a look at the Idaho Society's discussion postings uh, when things go up there. So if you have questions there, you can sort of post in one of those. And if I think I can be helpful, I'll try to step up and say something. But we have now, again, we're into tax season, right? Remember, because we had a week of supposedly filing is open. So we'll see how that goes. All of us in Arizona are waiting on small business income tax returns to be allowed to be filed somewhere or that to get explained and things to happen which probably won't happen for a long time. So I think in Arizona, we're gonna be seeing quite a delay in getting energy returns going, uh, but that's our problem, not yours right now for those of you outside Arizona. But I'm sure you all have your own pieces of fun because especially with all the new pastoral entity taxes, I'm sure it's gonna be interesting with your tax software, state tax departments, et cetera, all throughout the country. It's been an interesting time. So we'll get back together next week, see what's going on here what we can do, and then look at uh, doing some more work here and talking some more about what's going on in the area of current federal tax developments.